Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I read the text for you. The, the, the title that I've given the message is simply The Other Nine. The Other Nine. The text comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. Here's what it says. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went... They were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. I don't know how much you know about leprosy. Even if you're a medical doctor in the U.S., you don't know that much about leprosy. We don't see, it's not a big problem in this country, but it still is a big problem in other parts of the world. And in the ancient world, if you got leprosy, it was pretty much game over for your life. It was a slow, steady kind of dying on your feet as your nerves went numb, skin lesions broke out, things began to rot and decay, and literally parts of your body would just start falling off one after the other until little by little all you had was stumps left. You would go blind, your circulation would get messed up. It was like literally dying slowly over a long period of time. But that's not even what made leprosy the most painful. The most painful because even before microbial pathogenesis was understood, People knew that leprosy was a very contagious disease. They didn't know why it was contagious, but they just knew that if you're around someone with leprosy, you're going to get leprosy. And so as a way of protecting society, anytime someone became a leper, leper, L-E-P-E-R, not a spotted cat, anytime someone became a leper, here's what you did. You would present them to the priest, and the priest would say, yes, this person has leprosy, and they would declare that person unclean. And once you were declared unclean, you were cast out from society. And that may seem like a cruel thing, but before modern medicine, this was the only way to make sure that the, de the, that the disease didn't devastate the entire population. So the hardest part, really, beyond the physical suffering of leprosy, was a total isolation. You were cut off from all human contact except with other lepers. So think about that. You are cast away from your family, your, your spouse, your children, your friends, your parents. You never really get to be near them again. There's a prescribed minimum distance that you have to keep away from every village, every other person. And the only people you have any human contact with are other people who have the same disease as you. So that every time you look at one another, you're reminded in a fresh way of the tragic story of your own life. 
Now, what's interesting is leprosy is often given in, in the Bible as a symbolic disease of spiritual illness. And I think partly it's because the dynamics of spiritual illness are very similar. Spiritual illness often leads to very self-destructive ways of living, up to brokenness in life. And often people like that end up congregating and making community with one another. And there's a sense of being cast off by others. And it's painful. It's isolating. It's lonely. And so for people with leprosy, it was a very, very hard way to live. Many wished for death. And the chances of a cure were almost non-existent unless something supernatural happened. So it was that one day on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus happened to come across ten men with leprosy, and they were at the safe distance away from the village, keeping a, a far distance from everyone else. But they saw him, and they could tell just from his entourage that this was somebody. Maybe his reputation had preceded him, and they were told that this man was a healer. So out of desperate hope, and I don't know if you've ever been desperate before, if you've ever been sick or lonely or broke or any other kind of desperate, and you would have taken any kindness, any softness or gentleness or, or generosity from anyone because you were so needful and desperate, and that's the state they were in. They were crying out from across the street, Jesus, would you please just show us some mercy? It's so hard to live like this, and no one can help us. If you could do anything, throw a little break our way. And Jesus, what I love about Jesus, if you read the New Testament with an open mind, I defy anyone here to read the New Testament with an open mind and find something to hate about Jesus Christ. You can find lots of stuff to not like about me, about the people at your table, about every other Christian. You can find a lot not to like about organized religion and about the church. But I cannot yet, after how many readings of Scripture, find something about Jesus to hate. And one of the things that I love most about Jesus Christ is that the people who would annoy us open up his heart. I don't know about you, but when you see people in desperate situation just yelling out at anybody, dude, you got to help me, you got to help me, isn't there a side because why do I have to help you? It's not my problem. I'm sorry for you, man, but I can't suddenly stop everything I'm doing and make your issue my life's burden. I'm just not that good a person. Or Steve Harvey say, I ain't that good a Christian yet, right? I'm working on it. God's working on me. But the truth is most of us don't feel the full weight of the suffering of others. And what I've always loved and admired about Jesus is that when he sees desperate people in pain and they cry out to him, he always pauses to listen to what they're saying. He always does. He always stops and is allowed, he allows them to interrupt his life and he listens to what they're asking for and so much of the time, he gives them what no one else can give him. And he heals. He loves. He shows compassion. And that's what he does. And so I want to draw out two things that that's important to know from this passage, this encounter. The first is, in this story, we see the difference between being thankful and giving thanks. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you might just want to write that little bit down. There's a difference between being thankful and giving thanks. Verse 14 says that when he saw them, he said, 
Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now that needs a little explaining because the way it worked was this. The first time you got leprosy, your neighbors reported you, oh, I think this guy's really sick. And they bring you to the priest and the priest would say, yes, you have leprosy, unclean, keep away from all of us. Some of them would have to have a bell tied around their necks so that every time they walk nearby, people would know, oh, dude, here comes the guy, and they would run away. Imagine what that felt like. A bell around your neck to tell everyone, stay far from me. And like I said before, the second time, if by some miracle the leprosy went away, the only way to reenter society was to show yourself to the priests again and have them declare you clean. Whereas once they told you you were unclean and get out of us, the second time, the priest would declare you clean and would welcome you back into the fold of society. And I find it interesting the way Jesus chose to heal these men. Because many other times he used things like, remember that gross story when he spit into the dirt and made mud and he put it over the guy's eye? And like, But at least you look at something like that and you're like, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this will work. I'm going to make a little mud cake out of his saliva and put it on my eye. And when you use some trick like that, it sometimes feels more like it's something real, doesn't it? I could give you a placebo, a sugar pill, and if you really believed it was going to help you, you might actually start to feel better. That's the power of thinking and expecting something's going to work. But the way Jesus heals these men, he doesn't do anything un unusual. He just goes, all right, it's done. Don't worry about it. Just go and show yourselves to the priest. And they're looking at their stubby hands and their dead nerves and going, what do you mean go show ourselves to the priest? He goes, don't worry about it. By the time you get there, your healing is all but a certainty. I want you to think about what kind of faith that takes. Imagine that you lived in an oppressive regime where to cross from one side of a border to the other, if you didn't have the right papers, you would be shot on the spot. There are still places like that on the earth today where if you try to cross the border with the wrong documentation, your life is going to get very unpleasant very quickly. Now I want you to imagine someone said to you, don't worry about it. Here's some papers. I promise they're good. And you're going to risk your whole life on this. And you're going to approach those armed guards and German shepherds and everything is resting on the fact that this guy told you these documents are legit. Don't worry about it. Well, whether you approach the border or you just walk away, that's an expression of faith, isn't it? And at some level, all ten of these guys had some measure of faith because it says they listened to him and they just walked away. Now, sometimes desperation makes you do things. Sometimes faith makes you do things. But whatever the case, all ten men left him and walked towards the priest. And the miraculous thing was, exactly as Jesus said, as they were approaching the priest, one looked down and goes, dude, look. And he could feel his hands and his fingers and skin were whole again. And he looked at him and all his friends looked the way they once did in their healthy years. And here's what's interesting about that. All ten men were healed. All ten men, without any condition, without paying any price, simply by the mercy of Jesus Christ, were freed of this affliction. But only one of them, upon seeing that he was healed, came back to give thanks. And this is where I want to make the point that there's a big difference between being thankful and giving thanks. See, I think all ten men were very thankful. Because to be thankful is simply a way of saying they felt really good about their good fortune. 
Something good happened in the midst of a bad time, and they felt positive about it. Who wouldn't feel good about something like that? If you were broke and you got a job that paid you millions of dollars a year, would you be thankful? Raise your hand if you would hate that. That would be the worst thing that could happen to you. We'd all be thankful. You'd say, I'm so thankful, because it doesn't take an extraordinary thing to make you feel good about good news. Every human being, every gender, every race, every age, every religious background, every human being knows how to feel good about good fortune. It's not religious, it's not spiritual, it's just being human. Even animals know. When my, when I see my dog and I say, treat, little tail, that dog is thankful. There's nothing spiritual or philosophical. The dog likes to taste these little kibbles and when I give her one, she's happy. Good things are happening and she is feeling good. Now that's a dog. But in a moment like that, me and that dog are exactly the same. Good fortune equals good feelings. That's what being thankful is. It doesn't become thanksgiving until it becomes a transaction. Do you notice that we call the holiday Thanksgiving? We don't call it thankful day. We don't call it feeling good day. We call it Thanksgiving because it's a stark reminder that when you just feel thankful, that's a very self-centered dynamic. It isn't until you realize that the reason I'm feeling thankful is because someone has given me something. Until we acknowledge the one who has given us these good things, thankfulness dies inside of us. But when it bursts out of us and is expressed towards the giver of the good thing, suddenly thanksgiving becomes more than just feeling good about good fortune. It becomes something expressed and real and powerful. The difference between the one leper who came back and the nine who did not has nothing to do with whether one was healed more than the others. All ten received the healing. All ten felt fantastic about their new stroke of luck. But only one of them acknowledged that this did not come from nowhere, that it came from someone. Only moments ago they had stood across the street from a man named Jesus and he had told them, your healing is all but sure. Go and present yourselves to the priests. That was not a long time ago memory. It wasn't something that I would dust off their journal and go, oh yeah, I totally forgot. That was like an hour ago. And only one of them paused in his euphoria to think about the fact that this good fortune did not just fall from the sky. It was given to him by someone. And he made a decision in that moment to translate that good feeling into a word or expression of thanksgiving. He didn't just feel thankful. He gave thanks to someone. And in that way, I think thanksgiving or gratitude is a lot like love. I, I remember one time a friend came up to me. Um, if I don't care for it very, very diligently, my breath smells like um, dragon's toes. Okay, I have what they call halitosis. Okay, so I have bad breath. That's because my teeth are all gross, and I just—it's a mess in there. You don't want to get near me. So if I'm—so one of my friends I remember came up to me and goes, "Hey, do you have some gum?" And I was like, "Oh, I, yeah, I have some." He goes, "Well, it's not doing you much good in your pocket." 
And I'm like, wow, dude, I was going to do something nice for you, but you just insulted me like that. I think what he's trying to say is gum doesn't produce benefit for anyone unless it's being chewed. Having it in your pocket is making my nose want to kill itself. So, you know, like what he's saying is use it, express, do something with it. Just holding it is of no value. And in that way, I think gratitude and love are very much the same way. If you say to someone, man, I just love him in my heart. It's a big secret. I'll never tell him, but I love him so much. Good for you, but good for nobody else. Who cares who you love to the ends of the earth? If you never show it, never say it, then that love is a big secret. It might actually be a big lie. How do you know you love anyone unless it's expressed? If it stays hidden away in the lockbox of your own heart, how do we know it's really even there? Beside your own boastful claim that it exists, does it benefit anybody else? And the And I think gratitude is the same way. You could say, man, I'm so grateful to my parents for everything they did for me. I've just never told them, but it's okay. I have benefited so much from everything they've done for me. I'm so thankful. And I I congratulate you. That's good for you. But I think your parents would really enjoy hearing that secret every now and then. And it reminds us that These are things that are transitive in nature. They require an object. You can't just be loveful, can you? Can you be a person who just, I just, I'm so loveful. What do you love? I don't love anything in particular. I'm just so full of love for love. That's nonsense. Nobody's just full of love. You love things. You love people. It requires an object. It's not a feeling you could just feel. It's something that requires an object or it's meaningless. Now, some snarky philosopher will try to tell you, oh, I'm sure there's some way to... Be quiet. Just be quiet. You can't just love. You must love someone or something. And I, I believe that works the same way with gratitude. It must be expressed for it to be affirmed and validated, for it to be real. Because gratitude kept a secret is worthless to everyone. At our last Vinehouse community group gathering, we took some time to write some thank you notes to people. And I've been pausing all week just to reflect on the people I'm thankful for. And I, I took some time over the weekend just to write some letters to people. And I think it's important just to do that every once in a while. And let me tell you, in this day and age of texting and typing, writing longhand, I got arthritis just from writing a couple letters. I can't believe how out of shape my writing muscles are. So those few of you that got the letter understand that I'm going to be crippled in my hand for a while, but it was worth it. Do you know in your own life that there's a difference between just being thankful, feeling lucky, and actually giving thanks, acknowledging that the good things in your life come from others? So much of it. Well, let me give you a second observation from this text, then I'll wind it down. That second observation is that there are a lot of barriers to gratitude. Gratitude is not a natural thing I'm finding. Not in myself, not in anybody. Gratitude is something that we need a holiday to remind us to do. Right? We have a holiday. How many of us think we should have a holiday to just veg out, a couch potato day? We really don't need a special day of the year to bring that out of us. Every chance we get, that's what we do. We need holidays to remind us of things we're forgetful of. Like, hey, 4th of July, do you know that we are a free country and it came at a great cost? Veterans Day, others spill blood for you. 
We forget these things, and so we make holidays to, to put a line in the sand and say, hey, after this day, you should remember something that you forget all year round. And on Thanksgiving, we remember that it's not our nature to be grateful. In fact, it's our nature to be ungrateful most of the time, I think. I'm not being overly critical. I'm just observing my own heart and the hearts of many people I know. Gratitude is not a natural thing. And so Jesus asks a very profound question. I love that Jesus asks questions like this. I don't know if it's proper form for a religious leader to be so blatant in the things he says, but he's like, uh, hold on a second. Weren't there 10 of you guys? Where are your nine friends? And when he asks that question, he's poking a finger right into it, isn't he? He's saying, look, hey, I thought last time I looked, there were 10 lepers. And I know I healed all 10 of you. I know, I, I know it was done. So where are the other nine? And that's an existential question of life, isn't it? Like, why is it that so many receive so much from God and from other people, and yet there's so little gratitude in the world? It can't be because there's a shortage of blessing. Every day of your life, even on the worst day of your life, something good exists in your life. I know that if you choose not to see it, you won't. But if you look for it, on the worst day of your life, you can still find something to be grateful for. And I know that our lack of gratitude is not because nothing good happens, but there's some other reason for it. When Jesus asks, why is there so little gratitude when there's so much blessing? I think he's pointing at some of the things in the human heart that work against gratitude. And let me just give you a couple quick ones. I think one is a sense of entitlement. I was at the mall not too long ago, and you know that awkward moment when somebody's behind you on the way out the door, and they're far enough, you like they could get their own door, but then you sort of feel like if you hold it, it's a long way. You're like, all right. And I did it. So I saw this lady come in. She had some bags in her hand. She looked like she was a woman on a mission. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to hold the door. And I felt like I worked there for a while. I'm like, I'm waiting. She's like looking at me. She's like, and she just walks right past me, out the door, doesn't even glance at me, no thank you, no nod. I'm like, check it out. This woman thinks I, I'm an employee of the mall. What, what is that about? I was offended. Like, how do you just walk out of a door that someone held for like 30 seconds? 33 seconds, but who's counting? So how, how do you do that? And not, not even a small acknowledgement, like, oh, thank you, or something. And I, what I realized was, no, okay, here, here's the thing. I don't know her at all. Maybe she's on the way to the hospital to save someone's life, and she just can't think about me holding the door. That's great. But I wonder if even in something as small as that, for some people, there's just this idea that that stuff is just supposed to happen for us. That it's not extraordinary to have the world bend to me. That I'm supposed to have good days and green lights. I'm supposed to be hungry and go to work and there's a box of free donuts. I mean, that stuff is supposed to happen to me because I'm supposed to have a good life. And so when good things happen, we're not thankful. We only notice when bad things happen and then we get ticked off. Now, before we crucify the woman at the mall for being arrogant and, and insensitive, I want you to think about this. Maybe we're like that more than we want to admit. That we rarely celebrate the good stuff, but wait, wait for one bad thing to happen and we just lose it. And what it shows you is you have an assumption that your life is supposed to be good 
And the day it breaks and stops being good, you have a reason to be angry at the whole universe. And if there is a God, you're especially angry at Him. I don't think that's the posture we're supposed to have as human beings. I think the world is a cruel place. It's a difficult place. Life is very hard. And I think most days are supposed to be a struggle. And every now and then, because God loves us and because we're surrounded by people who love us, good fortune will will befall us. People will bless us. We'll have good days. And we ought to be thankful that gratitude should be our default setting, not the other way around. In fact, I think it's a form of pride at the end of the day that we expect that we're entitled to a good life. How many acts of kindness from God and from other people do you think have been done for you in the last year that you never acknowledged? Because I have to believe that in as much as that woman walked past me, there have been days when I've been on the phone distracted or something, and I didn't realize that someone let me merge into traffic or held a door for me. How many acts of kindness and generosity were given to you in your life this year that you never even noticed or acknowledged? You never paused long enough to say, hey, I really appreciate that. And I think that the sense of entitlement is a universal thing that afflicts all people. So that's one of the barriers to gratitude, is expecting that life is supposed to be good and only complaining when life gets bad. Let me give you another barrier to gratitude, and that is taking credit for your own good fortune. Very typical of the NBA player, after everybody else gives him a great pass, the guy, all he does is jump up in his seven-foot height, which isn't that big a deal when you're seven feet tall. And he jumps up and he puts a ball through a hoop. And he goes, that's all me. Uh, a bunch of other guys drove that ball down the court, gave you an awesome dish off pass. You just jumped up and put it in. But this is what he does. That's all me right there, everybody. I did that. Nobody else was involved. And I think that's the other barrier to gratitude is just complete self-centeredness. This idea that every good thing that happens in my life, I made it happen. You didn't go to my job for me. I, I went I went to work. I made that money. I worked hard. I did, I did, I did. Maybe you don't know how many people are fighting for you to keep your job. Maybe you don't know how many others are sacrificing. There could be so many unknown stories. I don't think there's a human being alive who is self-sustaining and needs no one else. Every last one of us could not go another year of life without other people caring for us and about us. It's just not possible. Whether we acknowledge that or not is a whole other issue. I got to believe that one of the hardest jobs emotionally is to be an NFL offensive lineman. Okay? You are in the scrum, right in the middle on the line, just fighting it out, and it's so tiring. And you work like crazy against another guy built like a giant ox and you push him about six inches over, open up a tiny hole so the running back just darts through, and he sees daylight, enters the end zone, gets a TD, and he's doing his whole dance, and he's spiking the ball, and all the cameras are on him, and that guy's like, yes! And he gets the glory, and you download just pushing out that six inches to make that hole. Nobody ever mentions the hole you opened up. All they said was, he got through. That was amazing. How did he get through? There's 800 pounds of flesh in the way. How did he get through? Nobody talks about it. And I got to believe being a, I mean, think about this. If you get, if your quarterback gets sacked, you are crucified for being a weak offensive line. Oh, the O-line is just, they're not showing up to work today. 
Every down they got to work hard to keep that from happening. And the fact that the guy doesn't get sacked every time is a miracle. But let it happen once, they will crucify the O-line. But when you hold the line long enough for the QB to drop back in the pocket, find a receiver who has run, think about this, 60 yards downfield, throws the ball, the guy catches it, and all that time that he had to do that was made possible by the hard work of the offensive line. But the QB gets the camera, the receiver gets the camera, and they get the replay after replay. When do you ever see the cameras point at the offensive line and go, look at them hold that line? I mean, if I were an NFL offensive line, I'm like, this is the worst job in the world. We make everybody else look good, and we never once get acknowledged. That's why I love when I see an NFL player after he's scored. I love when I see one of them point at the other guy. In case dumb cameramen don't get the message, don't even look at me. If that dude hadn't thrown that block, if he hadn't opened that hole, I would be a pancake right now. I would be a Boy Scout badge on that guy's jersey. That guy opened the hole, it's all you. And I love that these guys who are in the limelight once in a while share that glory with the other guys who worked hard to help make it possible. That one gesture of pointing blesses me so much. Do you remember back in the day, when I say back in the day, I'm almost always talking about the 80s, the most glorious decade of human history. 1980s. Don't get don't get smart. <laughs> and uh, do you remember those 80s isotoner glove commercials with Dan Marino, Joe Montana, they... And it was quarterbacks giving away isotoner gloves to their offensive line. And I love the tagline, I take care of the hands that take care of me. That's the only time an offensive lineman will ever be on TV is because the quarterback is giving him a Christmas present. But again, I I think that tells us something. That we should never presume our good fortune just happened. Or that we made all of it happen for ourselves. It does. It takes nothing away from what you did. That running back still had to fight pretty hard to crash through the hole. Nothing taken away from him. But at some point, you got to realize every good thing you do is in an ecosystem made possible by others as well. Sure, you work hard at your cube, but you work at a company built and held together by other people. You can't show up in an empty building and go, we're going to make cell phones here. I'm just going to sit here and do accounts receivable, and cell phones will magically be made. Give me a break. Everything you do happens in a system built by many others. You cannot live by yourself, so you should not live under the illusion that you are the only one you have to thank. It is good for our soul to pause on a regular basis and acknowledge that my life is brought to me courtesy of these many sponsors. And that's what I find myself doing this weekend. I handed some of you envelopes this morning. Um, I just found, I was asking the Lord, tell me the words to share with people who are really, really blessing me. And as I was writing these letters, I just realized how little I acknowledge some of the people who make my life so rich. I had to repent of that. And it felt really, really good to share with them what I felt Let me end with this. The end of this whole story, Jesus looks at the one guy who came back and he says something very interesting to him. He said, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith 
has made you well. All ten were healed physically. That's not the issue. All ten were healed physically. But the one difference, the one difference, was that this man came back and gave thanks to Jesus. And as a result, he got more than the physical healing. He was drawn into an engagement, a relationship with Jesus, so that his heart learned that the healing wasn't just a miracle, it was a gift. And every time we receive a gift, we acknowledge that every gift has a giver. You know the difference between finding money in your front seat and finding money in your front seat with someone's name on it that says, hey, I was thinking of you? You know, finding money in your front seat is like, yes! And all you think about is what you're going to buy. Finding money in your front seat with someone's name on it says, man, that person really loves me. You get the money and the love. How good is that? And what he's saying is the nine guys who got healed, all they got was freedom from disease. They don't even know that someone loved them, and that's why it happened. All they think is, thank my heavenly stars, I am rocking it now, and I'm going to go and get some dates because finally my face isn't falling off. And, you know, they're probably so happy, and that's all they're going to get. But this man now knows he is free because he is loved. And that means so much more than just getting good things. I want to encourage you this Thanksgiving to pause and to seriously think about giving thanks to God and then giving thanks to some of the people around you who you really owe a debt of gratitude to, but maybe it hasn't occurred to you in a long time, to acknowledge just what a big part they played in making your life the way it is. And if you do it, if you actually sit and do it, I think what you'll find is it will take those relationships to another level and it will be very, very good for your own soul. Why don't we bow together and I just want to close us in prayer and then we'll go into a very, very, very powerful testimony. So let, let's pray together. God, we want to just first pause to acknowledge that every day of our lives, you have been good to us. And we admit that some days it's harder to see that. But you have never changed. You have always, always loved us and have wanted what is good for us. And we just admit to you today that we have not always been thankful. We have not always given thanks to you. So we pray that you would train our hearts to give you the thanks for what you have done. And to remember to give thanks to those around us who have made our lives possible. We also pray, Lord, that you would remove from us that spirit of entitlement. For in the end, it robs us of life's joy. It only allows us to see the bad that happens, never to celebrate the good. Instead, give us a heart that acknowledges the hardness of life and rejoices with each blessing. It's filled with gratitude. And as we pause to give thanks, we pray that you would take our relationships to a deeper place, that you would strengthen our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to play a video testimony. Um, 
Julie and Joe Yoon have been coming to our church for just under a year, and they have gone through a lot of changes in their lives. They have taken a lot of leaps of faith. The last one, probably the biggest in their lives. And they have a compelling story. So we've asked them to share that story, and they've chosen to do that through a video testimony. So I want to ask you to watch that video now. Hi, I'm Julie, and my husband is Joe. We've been at Harvest for almost a year now, and this is part of my story. We got married in 2008 and were living in New Jersey at the time. Joe was an art director in advertising, but when the recession hit, he couldn't find a job. I was working as a demonstration chef, and we were living off of my small income. It was hard to come home every day and see my depressed and scruffy husband strapped to his computer, job hunting all day with no success. After a cold winter, we decided to move to California for a change in scenery. We figured, if we're going to be poor, we might as well be poor where it's warm. Once we were there, we were struggling financially so much that I remember taking this little piggy bank and dumping all the change onto the carpet to see if we could scrape up just enough to pay one of our bills. Then, things got worse. I tore a ligament in my right arm. Now I couldn't work at all. Without being able to contribute, I just felt useless and purposeless. But then, Joe was let go of his job. Now we were really in trouble. I started to question what was going on with us and if coming to California was a mistake. I decided to go to our church's women's retreat and I kept praying silently in my heart, God, why is your back turned against me? Then one night, one of the pastor's wives, who didn't know me at all at the time, came up to me and prayed. She said, God wants you to know that his back is not turned against you. And coming to California was not a mistake. Obviously, I lost it. I completely broke down. I couldn't believe that God was using my same exact words to speak to me in this way. Things started to turn around. My arm completely healed, and I had started my own catering and cooking class business. From there, Joe and I began a food blog together and eventually started making cooking videos on YouTube. Joe finally landed a steady job, and the next two years were like a break for us. However, I started feeling this pressing in my heart that we were meant to give up this comfort and start pursuing making YouTube videos seriously as a business. I mentioned it to Joe, but he said it was too unrealistic, and so I just dismissed the idea. I fell into a deep depression for an entire year, and I realized now that it was because I wasn't living that radical life that God wanted me to live for the sake of comfort. I continued to pray, and eventually Joe came around and felt the same thing too. Then everything started falling into place. First, Joe was prepared to give his two weeks notice at work and start his venture with me. But right before he was about to do that, ironically, he was let go of his job. We quickly realized had he quit his job on his own, he would walk away with nothing. But since he was laid off instead, he was now able to receive unemployment. Next, God surprisingly provided us a housing opportunity in Chicago through the help of Joe's parents. We never saw this coming, but we realized this was all part of God's master orchestration according to His perfect timing. And finally, we decided to launch a Kickstarter project to see if we could raise funds for our online cooking show through crowdfunding. We had 30 days in our campaign to raise the full asking amount of our project or we wouldn't receive any of the money. But to make things more stressful, 
we ended up having to leave for Chicago before even knowing if we would be funded or not. But we left in faith anyways. Our friends joked that if we didn't reach our project goal in time, that we should just ask our parents to put in the remaining balance for us. But then I felt God telling me, don't have a safety net. He told me that if he was going to fund us, that he was going to do it. And that if he wasn't going to do it, then that was his will and we would have to accept it and trust him anyways. So I called both of our parents and told them not to fund us at all. My nerves were tested every day after that because there were moments in our campaign where the funding became stagnant. But we started a habit of praising God for each dollar we did raise and we started lifting up a prayer for each person who did fund us by name. We did this throughout our entire campaign and I'm happy to say that even though it came down to the wire, God funded us even more than we originally asked for. Now, ideally, I'd like to tell you that everything is fine now, but that's not the case. Truthfully, we're back to struggling every day. We're not sure where our next dollar will come from, and at times it gets really tiring. But I realize now that all these struggles were for a greater purpose. This entire time, God has been working on my character. Since I'm on YouTube, one day I might have a large platform to speak on, and I think God is preparing me and training me for that day. He needs to know that he can trust me with that platform and that I will use it for him. I know he wants to make sure that we are good stewards with our money by remembering our pain and helping others who are in need. So he still has a lot of work to do in us. But I can honestly say that each day, I'm really thankful for the little things I used to take for granted. I'm thankful for our health, our community at Harvest, and the opportunity to do something that we enjoy. And even if it's not always easy, I make a daily choice to praise Him, regardless of what we're going through. I'm reminded to do so with this quote, Where there is praise, God's presence can be felt. Praise Him, not your circumstances. Thank you for listening to the story that God is writing in my life. My story is a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. All thanks and glory be to God. What we're going to do now is have a little time at our tables to talk about some of what you've heard this morning. Um, and if you really don't feel comfortable sharing, don't feel put on the spot or pressure into anything. But we want to have, give you a chance not just to sit and listen, but to share what's on your mind and what's on your heart with people at your table. So we can flash that slide up. We want to give you a few questions. You don't have to w work through all three of these questions. But just think about any one of them. And if one of them prompts something in you, feel free to share with a few other people at your table. And we're going to spend how many minutes, Pastor Jared? 20 minutes? Because we're going to spend the next 20 minutes until 11.50 doing that, and then we'll call you back together and sing one final song. Okay, so table host, you can facilitate. These will be the three questions that we'll have an option to work through. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.